0: We're to Matthew chapter 22, Matthew 22, and I believe it's the first 14 verses, first 14 verses of Matthew 22, so we'll begin at verse 1, page number 1534, if you want to follow along on paper, otherwise the words will be on the screen as well. Matthew chapter 22, beginning at verse 1. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come. But they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. While the king was enraged, he sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. Go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see his guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked. How did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, Tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, I think, I hope you will agree with me that this is an interesting parable. Um, Jesus is still um, teaching parables to the, the Pharisees and, the, and the, the chief priests in the presence of his disciples and others who were following him and, and hearing his words, some of them hopefully learning from his words. But in this parable, Jesus clearly sets forth um, the wickedness of these guests who brazenly rejected an invitation from their king uh, to this feast, this banquet on his son's wedding day. So, you know, that's the, the negative thing that Jesus communicates here. But, but I believe that he also sets forth and, and draws attention to the, the persistence and the determination of God. His patience, his pursuing love, going after those who refuse to come to the feast that he has prepared for them. Now, I want to look at this parable in three parts because as I read it, I couldn't help but separate it into three different parts or, or movements, and the first movement focuses on, on this rejected invitation. The invitation goes out to the people who were originally invited, and, you know, it seems like they couldn't care less. Even more, uh, they seemed hostile toward it, so that's the first movement. The second movement focuses on uh, the filled wedding hall. If all these initial people refused the invitation, how did this wedding hall get, get filled? And then and third, um, and this is the, the weirdest thing about the parable for me, but we, we, we're going to focus on that, that unprepared man with the missing wedding robe at the end. So um, we'll look at these three movements in turn, beginning with the first. And in the first movement of this parable, we see a picture of, of the rejection of Christ. By the Jewish leaders. And so this is a parable in a sense that speaks uh, directly to the time and the place in which Jesus was living, where the religious leaders of Jerusalem, the religious leaders of his own people are rejecting him, plotting against him, thinking, we've got to get rid of this guy. And of course, these religious leaders represent unbelieving Israel during the time of Jesus and really stand to represent, as it's bumped out further and further represent all throughout history who have rejected God's gracious overtures to humanity, drawing them in. People have refused, have refused his gracious offers throughout history. And in this first movement, we also learn a very important lesson, that indifference to Christ and opposition to Christ both constitute a rejection of Christ. Whether you are indifferent about Christ or you are utterly and openly opposed to him, it comes to the same thing. Both are simply different ways of rejecting Christ. One is an active rejection of Christ and one is a passive, Rejection of Christ. Now we know that there are many in our society who are active and openly objecting to the lordship of Jesus Christ. That is not the case in the church. At least people in the church, people who are part of the church, do not stand up and and claim this, that they are actively opposed to Jesus. In the church, there is, however, presumably, People who are here for the wrong reasons and people who, when it is all said and done, are pretty indifferent to the claims that Jesus Christ makes on our lives. So let's look at the story. And as I said, it's an interesting story. A king has a son who's going to be married. And he sends messengers throughout his kingdom in order to invite his subjects uh, to the wedding feast, Now, we would naturally assume in a context like this with a king and his subjects that that his original guest list here would have been a who's who of ancient society. The wealthy people, the powerful people, the popular people, the talented people, the well-known people, the well-connected people, the highly accomplished people. And surprisingly, Everybody turns the king down. Now, you need to understand that for those who uh, were hearing this parable as it was originally spoken, they would have immediately interpreted this behavior as just grievous and unthinkable, okay? Not only was it an outrageous display of rudeness, it was was a foolish act that might even have been looked upon by the king as an act of treason, okay? Because when a king sent out a wedding invitation like this, it was really more of a command than an invitation. It was really more of a command than anything else. If the king tells you to show up at his hall, you show up at his hall. Nevertheless, this king sends out the wedding invitations, and they are turned down. And so, what does he do? He sends more messengers... He even has them describe the the menu that is going to be served in order to to persuade the people to attend this event. He says, this is going to be a tremendous party. Please come. But we're told that the people still do not care. Some are completely indifferent, and they go back to their farms and and go back to their businesses, and some, strangely, are openly hostile, abusing and, and killing the messengers of the king. Well, the king, understandably, gets very angry about this. He gets angry about this on the day of his son's wedding feast. What does he do? He sends out his armies to burn the town to the ground. So Jesus tells this shocking and ironic story to illustrate what it means to reject the gospel. God has prepared for us this great feast in the gospel at the cost of his very son. He has invited all to come. And when we ignore or reject that offer by indifference or by direct opposition, it is not just unacceptable. It is not just rude. It is an offense to God Almighty, which is precisely what Jesus is trying to communicate in this parable. To people, presumably, who cared a great deal about what God thought, right? At least based on their external, their outward behavior and posture. Jesus tells them like it is. He makes it very clear that the rejection of this invitation is sin. Ugly sin, pure and simple. It is an act of rebellion against the king who, of course, represents God. And so the people who reject the invitation can't claim to be neutral, okay? And they can't claim to be victims when the army comes and raises their town. They can't claim to be innocent. They are unwilling, indifferent, and opposed to God. This is the picture that Jesus paints here. And of course, as I mentioned, he is most directly in this parable, based on its first audience, uh, describing the leaders of Israel in response to his gospel message. But, as I also said, he is also describing everyone who fails to embrace Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Now, This is a problem for any and everyone who does not embrace Jesus as their Lord and Savior because the gospel invitation is, in a sense, universal. It goes out to everyone. There is no one excluded from this invitation by their rank or file, by their status, by their gender, uh, by their ethnicity, by their race. There There is nothing that excludes anybody from receiving the invitation of the gospel. And when anyone turns this invitation down, It constitutes opposition to God. It's not not just being neutral. It constitutes opposition to God. You are either for God or you are against God. There is nothing in between. And Jesus tells us in this parable that people refuse the invitation for one reason and one reason alone, and that is wickedness. Thankfully, That's not the end of the story here. Because as I mentioned, we also see in this parable, like many others, the extravagant love of God. We see his patience, we see his provision, we see his excitement to bring people to himself, to invite people and to bring people into the party. We encounter a God here who pulls out all the stops in order to draw in as many people as possible to a feast that they have neither earned nor deserved. God's love is highlighted, I think, in order to justify the, the terrifying act of judgment in verse 7 the, the armies going and burning down the town, the destruction of those who refuse the invitation. And it is an act of justice because refusing the invitation, as we said, is an act of rebellion against him, against God, and it is essential for our understanding of the gospel. You have to understand, the gospel is not an invitation that can be turned down, okay? It's not an invitation that can be turned down. The gospel is not an offer that you can refuse without dire consequences. It's also, and I'm just gonna add this, not an invitation that you want to put off accepting, okay? You don't wanna put this off because you don't know what tomorrow holds for you. That, perhaps, is is one one of the biggest issues of nominal Christianity in our world today. And that is, you know what? I, you know, I, I think I believe in the gospel and, and at some point, you know, I, I really plan, I, I have the best intentions of, of really taking it seriously, really letting it transform my life, you know, but you know, it's not, not today. Or, you know, I got plans this weekend, and I know that those plans are gonna involve some things that aren't quite on the up and up, and so, you know, after that, then, you know, it's time to really dig in, really get serious about my faith, really get serious about the gospel. No, 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 no. No, the gospel invitation is one that you do not refuse. You do not turn down. You do not kick into the future. It's a decision that we have to make because it's either or. It's either or. There's no both and about the gospel. When the king invites, as I said, this is interpreted as a command. And as Jesus says, it is only our sinful hearts that can refuse this invitation because God has given us every single reason to joyfully accept this invitation. The incentives are huge. The incentives are huge. Salvation, peace, joy, fellowship, eternal life. I mean, what's the downside of that? There is no downside. The incentives are huge. God gives us absolutely every reason to accept. And there are no loopholes here. There are no loopholes here. This is a simple fact of life in God's world. No loopholes, which means judgment comes to those who reject the invitation. Those who do not respond appropriately to God's gracious overtures to them will be destroyed. There's no excuse. No excuse. And you know, understand too that, you know... When we look at this story in its context, so during the time when it was initially spoken, that from Jesus' perspective, there's a near future application to this, and then there is an application of this in more of an ultimate sense, and that is the application that applies to us. But... The near future application in Jesus' perspective is one that we should look at carefully too because it's something that shows us that God means business. And so Jesus more immediately here is pointing to the destruction of Jerusalem and it came actually 40 short years later when the Roman army came in and raised the city. Jesus is predicting this event And at the same time, he is reminding us that all who are indifferent and hostile toward the gospel and to God will face judgment and be destroyed. God is the the God of love and justice, God is the God of mercy and judgment, God is the God of grace and righteousness. Although he is patient and long-suffering, he will not tolerate wickedness and rebellion forever. And so Jesus, in addition to pointing 40 years into the future and Jerusalem's destruction, is also giving us a picture of the final judgment, which uh, from our vantage point is yet to come. And indifference to the gospel, or opposition to the gospel, both of those postures lead to judgment. Both of those postures lead to you being on the wrong side of history and on the wrong side of God because both of those postures are the same things in disguise. Both constitute an outright rejection of the gospel and both postures are very prevalent and very prominent in our culture today. We see indifference to the gospel, as I said, even in the church, in the practice and being of nominal Christianity. Matter of fact, J.C. Ryle, a pastor and theologian from years ago, wrote this. He said, open sin may kill its thousands, but indifference to and neglect of the gospel kill their tens of thousands. Think about that. Open sin may kill its thousands, but indifference to and neglect of the gospel kill their tens of thousands. Are you indifferent to the gospel? Are you apathetic about the calls of God to joyfully receive his gracious invitation? It is important for us to understand from this parable and from the gospel itself, that when it comes to the judgment of God, there are no victims. There are enemies of God, and there are friends of God. There's only two categories. The enemies of God are judged, and the friends of God, who have received the gospel of Jesus Christ, enter into glory, enter into the eternal banquet feast. So that's the first movement of the parable. Second is this, when the king's servants are sent out that third time. They're sent out to gather whoever they could find from wherever they could find them and bring them into the wedding hall. The servants do as they're told. And they go out and they do their job well. And they bring people in, and the wedding hall fills up, and Jesus seems to be describing the call to the Gentiles here. And we know that he is, because Matthew, from beginning to end, teaches us that the message of salvation does go far beyond Israel. The gospel of heaven is to the Jews first, to whom the covenant promises were originally given in the days of Abraham, but it is also for the Gentiles. And Jesus reminds us here of something important as well, that God's offer of the gospel is free. Notice what the king says in verse eight. The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. Not only were they undeserving and unworthy, they were murderers. And so Jesus uses this irony to draw attention to the sin of those who had rejected the invitation. Therefore, when the king sends his servants out into the highways and the byways to gather anyone and everyone they could find, we sense as readers the justice in it. But we also realize that that by implication, these two were people who were undeserving and unworthy. They were not people of rank. They were not people of importance. As a matter of fact, scripture tells us that they were people good and bad. The only difference is that they accepted the invitation. The king gives them an invitation to attend the wedding feast prepared for his son and those who knew that they were undeserving and unworthy are the ones who ended up coming. And I wanna take a moment here also to point out the king's resolute determination to honor his son. When it comes to his son's wedding feast, I mean, you can sense the heart of the king. You can sense the heart of God. He wants that wedding hall filled. He wants those banquet tables completely packed. Because he loves his son so much, he wants his son to be honored by many. Which is why we sometimes refer to God as a God of missions. As the great shepherd who leaves the 99 sheep in order to pursue the lost sheep, God is a determined missionary. He wants the nations streaming into his banquet hall. He wants the nations to bring praise and glory to his son, Jesus Christ. And when we go out to the four corners of the earth sharing the unrestricted offer of the gospel, we go out by God's grace and by God's appointment for the purpose of bringing honor to the Son, for the purpose of bringing praise and glory to our Lord and Savior. And so with the wedding hall full of guests, we come to the third and final movement of the story. And I just want to read this again. When the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot, throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are invited, but few are chosen. What is Jesus teaching here? I think this is something that some of us really need to hear. Some of us really need to be reminded of. Jesus teaches us that it is not enough that you merely say that you accept Jesus' invitation and then show up. I think what Jesus is saying here that judgment will come on those who have made a false profession of faith as well. Everyone has been invited to the wedding feast and many come, but Jesus says here that not all who come have truly embraced the gospel. I think he's talking here about the visible and the invisible church. I'd love... I love and respect and care for each and every person who attends this church. Attends churches throughout our community, throughout our area. And so it is a scary thought for me as a pastor that some people that I love so deeply perhaps are sitting on the fence when it comes to receiving the invitation of the gospel. Yeah, they show up where they're supposed to be, but then they pursue courses of action in life that just make you wonder. They have priorities in their life that that just makes you wonder. And I look at myself and I look at people in my own family and I look at what I am modeling for, for Jenny and for Maria and Kate as well and for, for other kids in my life and I think, man, am I communicating the right stuff? I mean, yes, hopefully in my words, but but in my behavior and in, in what things in life I prove mean the most to me. Am I communicating the right things? Do I know the right things? Am I living the right things? This is serious, serious stuff. And so this parable is a gut check for every single one of us because, you know, if you think that this is disturbing, the end of this parable, consider what Jesus says in Matthew 7, 21, where he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. The second wave of guests in the parable invited to the banquet from the highways and byways would presumably not have had time to go home and change before the wedding. They would not have had time to go and clean up and and take off their work clothes. Most of them would not have owned anything appropriate for this wedding anyway. And in fact, it was not uncommon back then for a king to actually provide the garments appropriate for his guests, And it's with that understanding that we realize when Jesus describes the scene of those attending the party and all but one seems appropriately dressed for the occasion, he is implying that that those garments have been supplied by the king himself. We'll give the king the credit, just as we give God the credit, okay? That said, when the king noticed a man who was not dressed appropriately, it was not because he didn't have time. It was not because he didn't have a set of wedding garments on his own. It was because he had clearly refused the conditions attached to the king's invitation. The king says, Friend, how did you come to be here without a wedding garment? And the man is speechless. Why? Because he has no excuse. And I think it's so ironic that the king addresses him as a friend's And then the next words out of his mouth in verse 13 are tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I think that you would agree that this would be kind of an uncommon thing to say to a friend. But what Jesus is saying here is that there are people who like to think of themselves as his friends. But they want nothing to do with the implications of of friendship with him. So as we close, I ask you, are you a true friend of Jesus? Do you desire his friendship more than anything else? Brothers and sisters, the feast is ready. The way is prepared. The invitations have gone out. The garments are provided. I hope to see you there. Amen. Amen. Let's pray.